from Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, perhaps the most enduring message about the God of the Bible is that God is love. And I wholeheartedly endorse that. Um, Of all of God's attributes, love stands or rises above all the other attributes. Now, I know what some of you hardcore Reformed Calvinists are thinking, like, it's the holiness of God. And yes, the holiness is supremely important. But as I've read through the Bible and gone back and forth, I really do believe that the love of God is the attribute out of which every other attribute of God flows. Even God's judgment is expressed within the framework of his love. So it may surprise us to think that God hates anything at all. We don't think about God that way, do we? That God hates some things. That's just not the way we think about God. Um, If God is a God of love, how can he hate anything at all, right? Uh, But that conundrum is sort of an expression of the modern mind with its hermeneutic of tolerance that makes it hard to grasp that God is a God of love, but there are some things that God hates. And we've become a culture that doesn't so much believe God is love anymore as much as we believe love is God. And that sort of guides our ability and thoughts about how we think about these two things that may seem opposite, but they're really not. I think it's entirely reasonable to think that someone, that loving someone or something also means hating some other things. For instance, if a man loves his wife and his children, he will hate anything that might harm them or pervert them or molest them or do them damage. But we're not talking about men and women, we're talking about God. And God is totally perfect and totally holy. And so whatever God ordains is right. This is something we say, right? Whatever my God ordains is right. It's a expression of surrender in the absolute justice, wisdom, power, and sovereignty of our holy and righteous God. And whatever God might hate is good. Stay with me here, okay? Whatever God might hate is good. It's good that God hates certain things and we ought to hate things that God hates. Let's look at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. Let's pause there for a moment. If you've been here for a while, you may remember I unpacked the word hate in the Old Testament some time ago. And hate in the Old Testament can mean several things. It can mean... Uh, to love less. Uh, It can mean um, to uh, not love as much, and it can mean hate in the modern sense that we use hate. Um, 
And that's exactly how it's being used here. It is being used in the true sense of something that God detests, something that is abominable to God. Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. It's a sort of literary way of the Old Testament, the way it talks about things, you know. Um, God sees you in your, you know, your ninth, you know, trouble and in your tenth suffering he'll deliver you. It's just the way the Bible likes to talk about things. Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. And here's what they are, okay? Haughty eyes, which means, you know, proud eyes or one version of the Bible says a proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sorts discord, discord among brothers. Now we can't cover all seven this morning, but as we read through that passage, you'll have noticed that three of the seven are related to the use of words. And so I thought it was fitting this morning to talk about words, the kind of words that God hates. A lying tongue, a false witness, and one who sows discord among brothers, presumably with his mouth. And each one represents the misuse of words. You know, words have incredible power for good or evil, don't they? Words are very powerful. And God cares about how we use our words, and God's hates when we use our words carelessly, flippantly, clumsily. And we all sometimes have a faux pas. We say things that we wish we could take back accidentally. I read something that said one time, uh, a gentleman is someone who never insults anyone accidentally. And sometimes we've done that, haven't we? We've said something that insulted somebody we didn't mean to. A gentleman intends to insult people when he wants to. But God hates the careless use of words. He hates worthless words, harmful words. One of the things I'm sort of enjoying now at this stage of my life is the ability to use words to diffuse situations or prevail in conversations. If I'm on the phone with someone um, and then there's a disagreement, I don't have to raise my voice. I mean, I'm getting to that stage in my life now where I've got enough life experience and wisdom. I'm, not, I'm still growing, but I can prevail in a conversation by just suggesting the right, you know, idea or thought. And I'll walk away and I'll say, that was amazing. Because there's a skill you can have in words if you are trying, right? Um, now, some people live their whole lives and never develop the skill of using words that way. But we ought to. It's kind of like a Jedi power if you cultivate it. So words can escalate or diffuse conflicts. But above all, beliefs and convictions are formed by words. And these can either destroy a person or they can make a person. There are three, thing, three things we're going to look at this morning. The power of words, the weakness of words, and words at their best. The power of words, the weakness of words, and words at their best. Number one, I want us to look at the power of words. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
You know, your words have the power and the ability to encourage or to completely demoralize someone. The power of words is in their ability to penetrate and to spread. So those two things. So what's the power of words? Well, the power of words is in their ability to penetrate and in their ability to spread. That's why words are powerful. They can penetrate into a person's heart and they can slander or gossip and when that happens, they, they spread. Um, right now, some of you are watching the defamation trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. It's sort of, normally I don't care about those kinds of things, but it's playing itself out you know, on the news. And it's all about the implication of words. In fact, it, was, it wasn't even sort of words used explicitly, but what they might have implied and the damage done as a result. Has someone ever spoken so cruelly or clumsily to you that they, it just lacerated you, wounded you? Has that ever happened? Someone said something to you that was just so hurtful that, I mean, it was hard to recover from it. I would suggest that that's happened to every one of us here. Proverbs says, a wounded spirit, who can bear? Right? It's hard to bear up a wounded spirit from hurtful words. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, you know, a heavy and discouraged heart is renewed by a timely word. Words are also powerful to encourage people, to renew people, to revive people. Um, I, I have learned in recent years about the power of affirming people. It may be things they already know, but just to come alongside somebody and give them an affirming word to encourage them, and you'd be surprised the power of that, to come alongside someone and say, Man, you know, I just appreciate the gifts you use, and God has gifted you, and I don't mean like, you know, just flowery language blowing, you know, air up someone's skirt. I mean like, like recognizing the gifts in other people and naming those things to encourage them. There's a, there's a power in that as well. Positive words also penetrate the heart. But for every, for every discouraging words, it seems that like you need 10 words of encouragement, Right? Um, and this is how hurtful words work. They're so powerful that, you know, uh, <clears throat> husbands, you can tell your wife she's beautiful for a month. And if you say one critical word about her appearance, she's not saying, well, you know, I had 29 days of positive reinforcement, so. That's not how it works. That's not how the human heart works. Those 29 days of you know, affirmation and encouragement, they disappear. And the only thing she's able to focus on is that critical word. And wives, you can spend your entire marriage encouraging your husband, but he'll remember the criticism you've given him. It's amazing the power that words have because they penetrate us. Uh, it's no wonder then talking about the power of words, that the human race was plunged into sin by just a few words. The whisper of the serpent in the garden who simply suggested, will you really die if you eat of the tree that God has told you not to eat? It's just a, just a whisper of a couple words. The human race is plunged into sin. Did God really say you'd die if you ate of the tree? 
The fact that Jesus in Scripture is called the incarnate word, the living word, and the word made flesh should have a whole new meaning for us. We think there's a battle of words going on in our culture right now. There have always been a battle over words from the very beginning. Words penetrate. They say, the pen is mightier than the sword, and indeed it is. Dictators and um, despots are more worried about what journalists write, or as worried, right? The pen that writes words is mightier than the sword. And there is a battle in our culture going on right now over words, right? We have mothers versus birthing persons on Mother's Day. I just want to acknowledge the mothers, the real mothers, those of you who have uteruses, who are able to give birth. I just want to like say thank you for the way God made you. But there's a battle over words right now, right? Birthing persons. Some people are using that language. Gender pronouns and the like, all an effort to control how we use words. And words don't just penetrate, as I mentioned a moment ago, they spread. As someone ever say, said to you, you know, they've, they've come to you and they said, you know, it got back to me that you said such and such. And I, I suggest that, or suspect that if that's ever happened to you, you went, wish I never told that person. Right? You, you immediately regret it, or if you're the kind of person who doubles down, you go, yeah, 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 I've, I said it. But probably you're thinking in your mind, ah, why did I say that? Right? Words spread. Words have feet. Word travels fast. Words implant ideas in other minds, and words ramify for good or for evil. Look at Proverbs 16, 27, and 28. A scoundrel's speech is like a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife. How? Through words. And it doesn't have to be overt words either. It can be through hints, suggestions, provocations, signals, or innuendo, right? Someone says, oh, I think they're going to make good on their promise. And you go, hmm, right? You didn't say anything, but you, you did, right? You can just like, you can put something in someone's mind by just sort of suggesting it. Innuendo. It's powerful. Proverbs 12, 14 says, A good man will find his words bearing fruit in the good that find its way back to him. And there's nothing, there's nothing better than that than to, to have said something to someone encouraging and see it bear fruit. I'll tell you, the thing I love most, one of the things I love most as a preacher is I will say something from the pulpit, and several years down the road, I will hear someone say it as their own, which I like. I don't need credit for it. It means that I'm getting through. You know, someone repeat it. It means that those, the word of God and, and my preaching is, is having its power and effect, and that's encouraging. So what do we need to know? We need to know that words have incredible power, that just because you feel something does not mean you should say it. I think this is another lesson that happens as you get older. Just because, you know, I'm the type of person, I say what I feel, you probably shouldn't. At least not all the time. So that's one of the things we need to realize. And if you say something, think beforehand 
how and when you should say it. Timing and delivery have so, so much. It's not, sometimes it's not about what you say, but it's the way you say it or when you say it, right? So words have power, and those words impact us for good or for evil. They can bring life or they can destroy. And if you don't want something spread around, you probably should not say it. So that's the power of words, but I also want us to consider the weakness of words. Number two, the weakness of words. Proverbs 14, 23, hard work always pays off, but mere talk puts no bread on the table. So words are powerful, but when it comes to the things that you have to do that need to be carried out, words can be incredibly weak. Here's a few things to remember when we think about the weakness of words, okay? Words are no substitute for deeds. A husband who prays, you know, Lord, feed my starving family, Lord, feed my starving family, Lord, feed my starving family, you know, and God's like, there's the door. You know, go hit the pavement. Go find a job, right? And Paul says, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat, right? There was a time in our culture when a man's word was his bond. It meant that if he said he would do something, his honor and reputation in the community was riding on it. You know, now you can burn people and just move on to a new city, new town. Um, but there was a time when a person's word was their bond. The second thing, when we think about the weakness of words, is that words cannot alter facts. Listen, uh, no matter how much you say something, it doesn't alter what's true. You cannot believe in gravity all you want, but if you step off of that ledge, it will have its way with you. You know, facts are facts, right? Um, some of us may have come from the kind of uh, faith background where we sort of claim things by faith, right? You know, you're sniffling, you're coughing, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you got 104 fever and you're saying, I don't believe in this fever. And it's like, look, you, you should have said that like before the fever, right? It's one thing to say, Lord, I believe you're powerful to heal me from this, right? To say, I don't receive this fever. It's like, buddy, you need some Tylenol and, you know. <clears throat> You can say the sky is green and the ocean is red all you want, but it doesn't make it so. Words don't alter facts. Now, God can change facts. In fact, what's more helpful instead of denying reality is taking that reality to God who has the power to change all things, right? God can change all facts, but facts are facts, right? And the third thing when we think about the weakness of words is words cannot compel a response. Um, they can, you can try to persuade someone. So I, I don't have any real power over your lives except spiritual authority to try to encourage you through exhortation and admonition to do what God wants you to do. But I can't, I'm not gonna break your door down, you know, and come in and, and force you to do things. The reason police carry guns is to enforce words. The law. Laws are just words. And frankly, no one would probably ever obey them if we didn't think there were men with guns prepared to carry out violence on behalf of the state to enforce the law, right? That's why cops are called law enforcement, because otherwise they're just words, you know? We, we joke about the United, the power of the, you know, the United Nations often. It's like, you know, some rogue actor nation is doing something and they say, well, we wrote them a letter you know, saying that we were very displeased with their bad behavior, right? 
you know, and some, you know, dictatorial ruler's just like, yeah, right, he doesn't care. So there is an inherent weakness of words. As powerful as words are, they have limitations. So what does God want? Well, God wants us to use words at their best, number three. God wants us to see and use words at their best. Proverbs 16 and 3 says, Righteous lips are the delight of a king. Words at their best will be honest. That's what righteous lips are, right? If God hates a lying tongue, he hates the one that bears, the mouth that bears false witness. And you may say, well, that just sounds like two of the same thing. Well, listen, a lying tongue is someone that doesn't tell the truth, but in, in Scripture, when it says a false witness, it's talking about someone who would lie under oath to get someone else in trouble, to say something about someone else that isn't true and possibly bring punishment and death upon them under oath, right? That's what bearing false witness is. It's not just lying. So it's, a false, it's lying, it's false witness, and someone who sows discord, right? But God wants, God loves the mouth that speaks honestly. Again, of the seven things God hates, three of them relate to words. That's important that we look at that. Now let me say a thing about honesty, okay? Uh, whenever you speak, this is something a good thing to remember. Maybe you should write this down, okay? Whenever you speak, you should speak the truth, but not everything true needs to be spoken. Whenever you speak, you should speak the truth, but not everything true needs to be spoken. Right? Friend, you know, how was my singing? wasn't terrible you know or what did you think of it <laughs> whenever someone comes up to me you know after a Sunday that I've preached and the first thing they say is you know how did you think you did I'm like just tell me what you didn't like about it you know <laughs> how'd you think no no no, no don't do that <clears throat> um not everything true needs to be spoken sometimes things are private or sensitive and shouldn't be shared but that's not the same as lying. But you know, sometimes people can feel they've been lied to because you withheld information from them. And sometimes it's a gray area, isn't it? You know, whether you should share information with people. In ethics, they often talk about if there's such thing as a righteous lie. Who's ever heard of this, a righteous lie? Well, righteous lie would be, you know, um, in the Bible, it would, it would be when Rahab told the men of Jericho, uh, she lied about the Hebrew spies. It was a righteous lie. Now, uh, Rahab at that time wasn't technically a believer. She was ignorant of the law of God, you could argue. Uh, but in modern times, an example of this would be something like um, if you lived in Europe during World War II and you were a Christian and the Nazis came to your door and you did not tell them where your Jewish neighbors were hiding because you wanted to save their life. The, that's the idea behind a righteous lie. The idea that, yes, lying is wrong, but it would be wrong, more wrong, wronger, to tell the truth at the expense of getting them killed. And I suspect that there were, and I, I know for a fact, there were Christians in Europe during World War II who did do that. Uh, and they risked their own life by lying to the Nazis during World War II to protect their Jewish neighbors. Um, now, I've heard some sort of, uh, you know, I've heard some Christians, maybe more on the fundamentalist uh, wing, I suppose, that lying under any circumstances is a sin. And, you know, here's the deal about 
about righteous lies. Um, I think the jury is still out, but I'll tell you what my opinion is, okay? So this is one of those times where I'm going to say, take it with a grain of salt, take it for what it's worth, but this is my educated opinion, okay? Um, Jesus always prioritizes human life and human need and human safety over other moral laws. So if there is a sort of hierarchy of things we should obey, people come first. People and their needs, they come first. A perfect example of this is the Pharisees criticize Jesus and the disciples because on the Sabbath they were hungry, they walked through a wheat field and they, you know, shucked the husk to get some grain to eat. They were technically working on the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you got it all wrong. We, we technically weren't working on the Sabbath. He says, Don't, haven't you ever read that when David and his men were hungry, they went into the tabernacle and ate the bread that was only for the tabernacle, which is only lawful for the priests to eat? They were hungry. They were in need. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. Uh, so it's my opinion that I know it sounds like situational ethics. I don't like that. I don't like the idea of situational ethics. But I just think that sort of human needs from Scripture... Human life takes priority. Human needs take priority. And in a situation, if I was a Christian in Europe in World War II, I would have hoped that I would have lied to save the life of my Jewish neighbors. So that's my opinion. Other theologians, pastors may disagree with that. Uh, here's, what, here's what you need to know, okay? This is what Jesus cares about. Let's, let's make the Christological shift here, okay? Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says... But I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every worthless word, every worthless word they have spoken. And this is what Jesus cares about, that in the judgment, we will give an account for every worthless word. And there's a lot of worthless words that we say and we use. We often don't think about our words. Uh, I I've, I've shared the story that years ago I worked in a grocery store. I was in my 20s when this happened. So I was the clerk guy who, was, who would, you know, fill the milk and unload the truck in the back room. And then I, they'd, they'd get backed up and they'd call me up to the check, checkout counter and I would check people out. And I must have been in my early 20s and <clears throat> there was no one in my line. It was sort of slow. The people in the front end, the other checkers and managers wanted to take a break. And there was, you know, the courtesy clerk. That's what we call them, which is the, you know, the person who bags your groceries, right? So it's two employees. And there was a, a girl, again, I'm in my 20s, I'm 47 now, it's been a long time, but there was a girl at the counter, and this is back in California, they used to have like movies and candy and cigarettes up at the, like, the front end, like the front end counter, and I made a, I made a crude, it wasn't sexual, but it was just a crude joke, it was just something to make fun at her expense to get a laugh out of my coworker. It was really hurtful, and I won't repeat it. Uh, again, it wasn't sexual or anything, but it was just like really crude, and it was... Something, if she heard, she would have been really offended by. We laughed, and I looked up, and her mother standing right in front of me. And she heard every word. And we were, I mean, it was, you know, it was, and, and she had this, she had daggers in her eyes. She heard, and I, she didn't say it, but she heard every word. I probably blushed. I was probably beat red. And I, I hi, hi, have a nice day. The next day, her husband came in very big man. And he, he was on the checkout counter next to me and he turned around because I knew him because they were regular customers. It wasn't like this is, I mean, they were regular customers. I had talked with them many times. 
and he said, he turned around and he said, did you say such and such about my daughter? And he, he, was, he was hurt more than he was angry, but he was angry. And of course I lied. I go, no, 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 no. You know, I realized when I looked at your wife that she probably thought I was talking about your daughter, but, uh. but he knew, and I knew and that he knew that I was lying, but it was like probable, you know, like, like what do you, whatever you call it, you know, plausible deniability. I'm 47 years old. That was probably 25 years ago. I still feel shame over it. I still cringe at that. It's the first time I've shared it publicly. It, it was so painful that I was so ashamed. Even in that moment, I felt it was a dark moment. It wasn't like, oh, I got away with that. It was like, it was such a moral failure. It was such a failure of integrity and character. And I've never done it again. And God used it as a lesson to me not to use worthless words, to think about the words that come out of my mouth. Because here's the deal, you can say something behind someone's back, uh, but if you're saying something that you wouldn't want to get back to them, you probably shouldn't say it, you know? So Jesus cares about what we say. So here's the question for us as we wrap this up, okay? How can we glorify God with our words. Here's a few application points, okay? Words at their best will be few. Right? Wise people are not always blabbing. Right? A fool is known by his many words. Uh, Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. So words should be few, right? Choose your words wisely and sparingly. Secondly, words at their best will be calm. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. So words at their best are few. They're calm, right? Angry, hot words, right, stir other people up. Uh, another experience when I worked for a home builder in California, it was a very nice area and I was a lot more blunt than I am now and <clears throat> there was a bunch of homes that this builder I worked for had built that people were thinking about getting a class action lawsuit because California had experienced tons of rain that year and homes in California just not built to endure torrential downpour for months and months on end. They don't have siding like here, they're built out of stucco. And even though they have, you know, waterproof lath paper around the windows, you know, if it rains for four months, you're going to get leaks. So a homeowner called me. I was a warranty representative to come and inspect her windows, and there was water leaking on the inside. And I said to her foolishly over the phone, well, if you've tinted the windows, you've voided the warranty. The right thing to say. Which was true, but I should have at least showed up and given it a chance. She said, okay, um, can I have my husband call you? And... He called me a few minutes later and he was livid because this is back in 2004, they had paid half a million dollars for this home. And he was angry. He said, you just told my wife that, this, that if the windows were tinted, you know, you wouldn't cover them. I need you to come here right now, right now. Can you come here right now? And I said, I ain't coming there right now. And he said, why? And I said, because you're hot. And I realized if we would have gotten together, we would have fought. I mean, that's how heated it was. He said, well, when can you come here? I said, let me look at my schedule, and I'll call you back. And anyways, when I did show up with the contractor, it was very tense. 
He was in the garage with a friend cleaning his rifles. I mean, it was, it was. But, <laughs> you know, his words were hot. He didn't have a soft answer. And I tried to calm him down. And at some point, you know, my words got hot. And I mean, we had like a verbal fight on the phone and I had to, you know, back away from it. Ironically, months later, he ended up offering me a job. He was a developer. And I couldn't tell if it was a trick because he just wanted me to quit my job and he was going to say, you know, gotcha. Or he thought, this guy's a tough negotiator. I don't know. I, I still don't know because I turned the job down. <laughs> but I didn't trust him. But if I had the right words, calm words to his wife, instead of saying what I said, he never would have called me angry. He called me because of what I said. In some ways, I, you know, his wife. Third, words at their best will be apt. Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. So words at their best are appropriate. They're apt. That's what that means, an apt word. It means that they're chosen wisely at the right time. It's the right word at the right time, like a word in season. And, you know, many, many people have said to me things that were wise, and I've said, that's a good word, right? And that's what you want. You want to be able to share a good word, a word that is apt. So words at their best will be few, calm, and apt. We ought to live our lives in a way, I know, I know it seems secondary, like it doesn't seem like it's the major leagues of sin, right? Major leagues is like sin and adultery and murder. But the way we use our words is just as important. And God says in the end we will give an account for the words that we use. Um, and the only way we can use our words wisely is to rely on the living word, Jesus. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for the grace of the word made flesh. Jesus Christ, our advocate, our savior, the eternal son of God, whose every word was appropriate, whose every word was wise, whose every word was a word in due season. Our hope and our trust and our faith is in this living word who became flesh, Help us, O oh God, to think deeply about how we use our words, mostly to glorify you, and let us glorify you in our words, that we might be called children of our Father in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.